Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, I'm uh, Raleigh Dixon, the, uh, whoa, the microphone just came off. <laughs> the uh, head of hepatology, and we've got a very exciting uh, Grand Rounds this morning. It's also, in addition to being Grand Rounds, it is the Hans Fromm uh, Memorial Lecture. And this is in uh, memory of Dr. Hans Fromm, who uh, died at age 66 from pancreatic cancer in January of 2006. Uh, Dr. Fromm came to Dartmouth as a professor of medicine uh, with a long, distinguished career in uh, 1999 to become the uh, head of the patibulary pancreatic section. Uh, Dr. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Fromm had a uh, long, uh, distinguished uh, career as uh, both an um, excellent clinician, a teacher, and a mentor. In fact, uh, Dr. Fromm took great pride in mentoring both students and young faculty. And you can see in this picture is another picture of Dr. Fromm and a very young uh, pancreatologist who actually, I think, looks pretty much the same now as he, as he did back then, um, Dr. Um, Tim Gardner, who's now himself become a world expert uh, in pancreatic disease. Well, it's a great uh, pleasure to introduce to you uh, this year's uh, speaker uh, for the Hans Fromm Lecture, uh, Dr. Uh, Kim Watt. Uh, Kim is an associate professor at the Mayo School of Medicine and is the medical director of liver transplantation um, in uh, Mayo Clinic Rochester, uh, one of the most prestigious and successful programs in the country. Um, Kim is actually the first woman and the first Canadian to actually hold uh, that directorship uh, title. Kim has, a, has had a very uh, successful uh, career. She has multiple publications in all aspects of liver disease with uh, particular specializations in NASH, which she's going to talk about later today, and in liver transplant, uh, which is going to be the topic of her uh, subject today. She has been an annual a lecturer at the biggest uh, meetings of our society since 2010, uh, the DDW, uh, ASLD, and the International Liver Transplant Society. But almost as, in, as uh, oh, we left out one of my slides. <laughs> so uh, almost as important as uh, her um, direct as her uh, directorship and her uh, accomplishment in um, uh, liver transplant is actually her directorship uh, of the uh, happy hour in uh, Rochester, Minnesota. She actually had a very nice slide of the two Mayo brothers drinking beers, but uh, this seems to have been left out of the presentation. <laughs> so um, in addition, uh, Kim has a great love for the outdoors. Uh, this is a picture of Kim in her kayak, which she built in her garage, uh, which must have been over a particularly long and cold Minnesota winter. Uh, Kim, uh, also, uh, every time I see her, I, I think she has a love-hate relationship. I think she has a love-hate relationship. I think she has a love-hate relationship with the outdoors because every time I see Kim, she has a new bruise, cut, or scrape, either from somewhere climbing in uh, the mountains of Patagonia or rollerblading in Minneapolis, which seems to be her most dangerous activity. So it's a great pleasure to introduce you today uh, the Hans Fromm Memorial Speaker, the 15th speaker 
She is the first woman to do this speech, but she is not the first Canadian. Now I am a little bit worried about this uh, microphone. It's got Raleigh cooties all over it. This is... You were supposed to minimize this. Oh dear. <coughs> All right. Is this actually on? So I have to yell as well. Can you hear me at the back? No. Just a second. Okay. All right, we're ready. So I was asked to talk about liver, um, the management of the liver transplant recipient um, from the primary care standpoint. And the reason um, that we're having this whole discussion is that survi <laughs> survival after transplant continues to improve. It continues to have an ex uh, expanding number of patients surviving well out to 20, 25 years now. So some of the more recent studies have 20-year survival of the people that were transplanted back in the 90s um, and the late 80s, and that is going to continue to improve and increase. And that's going to overload all of the transplant centers, and a lot of the care of these long-term post-transplant patients are going to fall in the hands of the primary care physicians, and um, pretty much everyone is going to start seeing a lot more transplant patients in their populations, um, whether it's kidney, whether it's liver, heart, etc. This is the SRTR, which is our, our national registry in transplantation that just follows all of the data of transplant patients, and when we looked at one-year survival, back in 1987, around the time that transplant really started to get going, is about 68%, and that's now increased to about 90%. But you can see that there's been a little bit of a, a flattening of that curve. So this is where everyone is now starting to think a lot more about long-term complications after transplant and managing all the long-term problems as opposed to the major focus we've always had, which is one-year survival and short-term survival, which has gotten better to the point now that 90% make it to that first year, and that's a lot of patients that are now starting to have long-term complications and long-term follow-up. This is a UK study that actually showed that the life expectancy of a liver transplant recipient is still lower than the general population and, and quite substantially lower in the patients that are transplanted at a younger age. So the, the life expectancy in the normal UK population compared to the transplant population is um, the, the transplant patient has a substantially lower long-term um, life, expe life expectancy. Obviously, the older age population is a little bit less um, of a discrepancy. Um, and this just outlines reasons why we need to take a longer focus or better, more focus at the, the long-term complications. So many variables contribute to risk, and that, that actually is me um, jumping off of a mountain. 
Um, and then there's a lot of different variables that we need to know about. So causes of death beyond one year. So if you get past that one year, what is it that's, that's the cause of death for our, our liver transplant patients? And this is a multi-center study that we, we had some data on three different centers following long-term over 12 years. These patients were transplanted in 1990 to 94. And so the... the the reasons that people died after one year were about a quarter of them died from a liver-related cause, and a large percentage of that was recurrent disease, sometimes rejection. And then the rest of the patients were non-hepatic causes, and unknown causes are unlikely to be liver-related causes, and they're unlikely to be cancers because those are usually picked up by the transplant center, so a lot of those are probably cardiac or other reasons. But the majority of patients that die after a year are dying from malignancies, cardiovascular disease, infection, renal disease actually is the actual cause of death in patients um, was a surprising number of patients. So knowing these causes of death can help us to know what we need to focus on um, in the, in the long-term follow-up of these patients. So if we just do a real quick review of the recurrent disease that took up about um, a quarter of the patients, um, most of that is hepatitis C. So that universally recurred in all of our transplant patients and did affect graft survival and patient survival. And nowadays, hepatitis C is very easily treated with these new oral agents. And that is really going to have a big impact on our graft survivals, patient survivals from recurrent disease. And this is going to be a really big impact. And that's really going to leave recurrent disease from the cholestatic diseases, NASH, um, as the main causes of recur <laughs> recurrent disease, which we tend not to see a lot of deaths related to. So the other causes, the main cause of death was malignancy, and that was one of the big non-hepatic causes. And cancer is very common in our transplant patients, and most of the literature will say it's at least twice as common as the general population. So a lot of cancers, reasons for that are likely related to immunosuppression, and immunosuppression just reducing the immune system ability to, to control proliferating cells. But cancers are very common. And survival, cancer-free survival, you can see for adults, is substantially lower than even for children. They're very common and at least twice as common as the general population. Which patients are the ones that develop these cancers? Well, that's um, a little bit more clear in two different studies, both saying the same thing. The alcohol-related liver disease and PSC patients tended to have the most cancers out of all of the, the patients transplanted. So there's still cancer within the other groups of patients, but if you had to pick two populations to follow really closely, it would be the PSC patient and the alcohol patient. Which cancers are these patients getting after transplant? Um, this is the, the NIDDK study. Again, that's that NIH multi-centered study. So follow-up long-term over 10 years, GI malignancies were very common. Overall, again, about twice the number of cancers as the CDC um, says is likely in a 50-year-old person over 10 years. And so our mean age in this study was 50. So GI cancers were substantially higher than the general population. Genital urinary cancers, mostly for women, mostly cervical cancers, substantially higher than the general population. Lung cancers were at least three times as high, and oral pharyngeal cancers. That's something that we don't tend to think about a whole lot, um, but in the liver transplant population, particularly the alcohol or smoker um, population, 
um, quite a bit higher risk to those patients of developing an oral pharyngeal cancer. So if, if you're going to screen for cancers, these are the big guns to screen for. Some of the risk factors for developing cancer, no surprises on this list. So age, immunosuppression, alcohol and PSC, sun exposure, because there's a lot of skin cancer, which we didn't really discuss, and smoking, um, obviously. So there's a couple of different studies now that have tried to outline a screening program or screening suggestions um, for cancer screening post-liver transplant. And again, these are really focusing on those, those particularly common malignancies that we're seeing. So skin cancers, very, very common. So every transplant patient should have a full skin exam annually. Um, the usual strategies of you know, sun prophylaxis, um, are always recommended as well. Wearing hats, wearing long sleeves, et cetera. Colon cancer, very common, particularly in the inflammatory bowel disease group. People with PSC tend to have a lot of inflammatory bowel disease, but they're even a little bit higher than the, the general transplant population. And in that, that tri-multi-centered um, study, the alcohol patient also had a slightly higher risk, but at least the IBD PSC patient should have annual colonoscopies regardless of how long they've had IBD for. So in the standard population, IBD, you have to have beyond 10 years to start doing annual um, colonoscopies. But now um, in the post-transplant population, they should be doing it annually. All other patients should be done by the general population screening, including the alcohol patient. It really just was that one study, so we need a lot more data to say they need more stringent um, screening. Lung cancer, I think most people in the room are aware of the change in the pulmonary world where they've now recommended CT imaging if you're a smoker or an ex-smoker within 15 years. So CT chest, because lung cancers are a lot more common in the liver transplant ex-smoker or smoker, um, CT chest is, is recommended. For all others, just an annual chest x-ray. ENT exams, not something we generally think about, but we see quite a frequent number of patients, particularly the alcohol-related liver disease, particularly the smokers that show up a couple of years after transplant with oropharyngeal or laryngeal cancers or even esophageal cancers. And these are things that we can try to at least um, determine a little bit earlier, or catch a little bit earlier, and hopefully impact that outcome. For women, the new guidelines in the general population changed to three to five year screening. That's for low risk patients and in our liver transplant or any transplant population, there's not a single woman that would be considered low risk because of the immunosuppression. So that would not apply to transplant patients. So it's still recommended for annual exams, for pap smears um, and pelvic exams. Breast cancer and prostate cancer really haven't shown up to be more frequent than the general population, so just general population screening is what's recommended. So one of the other big chunks of that pie that we saw was infection, and obviously we could talk forever about various different infections that can happen in any transplant or immunosuppressed patient, but the one infection that I really want people to walk out of this room and actually remember to look for or think of is CMV. So CMV back in the day, before we used to have, or before we had decent antiviral medications, used to cause complete carnage um, and, and was a big, big problem for patients' morbidity and mortality. So pretty much any time anyone has abnormal liver tests, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, any kind of symptom, we really do need to check a CMV-PCR. Not the serologies, IgM, IgG, they're not helpful. 
CMV PCR to make sure that CMV isn't starting to rear its ugly head. You can get um, refractory CMV that doesn't respond to valcite or to again cyclovir and it becomes really a disastrous problem for that patient. So this will present with fevers. You'll sometimes just see leukopenia or thrombocytopenia as your first sort of inclination. Liver enzymes can be abnormal. Um, they can just have reactivation of the virus without actual tissue invasive disease, but it tends to involve GI tract, liver, lung, CNS, retina, it can involve pretty near anything. And it has been associated with other outcomes, things like rejection, recurrent CMV, um, other increased risk in fungal infections, et cetera. So it does have multifaceted uh, ways of presenting itself. General treatment is with gancyclovir or valgancyclovir, and hopefully you won't ever see a refractory um, case. And delayed CMV definitely associates with a worse long-term outcome or survival in the liver transplant patient. So always keep an eye out for CMV. Fungal infections are another um, one that you really need to just remember to think about. It's not always on the top of our list when someone shows up with fevers, et cetera. But in a transplant patient, invasive fungal infections can happen, not commonly, but not uncommonly either. Generally occurs early when the immunosuppression is higher, but if you're seeing a patient beyond a year, you should remember cryptococcus. Depending on where you live, if you're in Arizona, there's other fungal infections that are around. Coccidio is one of the main ones that they deal with. But just remembering to look for fungus and keep fungus in the back of your mind. Diabetics are the patients that um, tend to be the highest risk for the fungal infections, and it can have a very significant impact on mortality. So zygomycosis, 50% mortality, very bad disease. High-risk patients are people that have been retransplanted, somebody who's been transplanted and has renal failure after, particularly on uh, hemodialysis. Those going back to the OR for any reason after transplant are at higher risk, and we tend to prophylax those patients for fungal infections for at least a month beyond that initial hospitalization. If we're talking about long-term follow-up, just simply have it in the back of your mind that, that these infections are not to be forgotten. So the other big piece of the pie, cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular morbidity, also mortality. It's one of the more common things that we're seeing in our transplant patients. It's becoming more and more common because more and more patients are coming into transplant with metabolic syndrome or even underlying cardiac disease. We've kind of expanded the patient avail or transplant availability to patients with underlying liver disease or sorry, cardiac disease. So it's, it's not going to get less, that's for sure. So looking at patients that have post-transplant metabolic syndrome, that's what PTMS is, obviously no one in the room will be surprised to see that people with metabolic syndrome have more heart disease after transplant. But it's a fairly significant amount of heart disease that people have. So it is, um, seems to be accelerated and more of a problem in the transplant patient. So risk factors for cardiac events in this one particular study, no surprise here, diabetes, hypertension, male sex, older age, but mycophenolate mofetil or Celsept was also on this, and I used to poo-poo that and say, oh, that seems crazy. But there's actually another study that also confirmed that MMF seemed to be um, associated with cardiac events, which is, needs a lot more investigation and uh, to make sense of that. So no surprise cardiac disease is common, and no surprise why it's common, 
but it's it's certainly increasing and we have, there's a surprising increased number of cardiac events that happen early post transplant and it's not just perioperative that first 3 to 6 months there seems to be quite a number of cardiac events those patients are usually still under the thumb of the transplant program but just being aware of that but you can see that there's just a steady increase in cardiac disease as you follow these patients out long term and what events they're having, now this is Mayo data, um, but I'm pretty sure it'll be ubiquitous. What events they're having are generally, more commonly, atherosclerotic disease and arrhythmias. So atrial fibrillation is getting a lot of press lately as being an impact on long-term mortality of, of patients, particularly even in surgical patients. But a lot of atherosclerotic disease. Heart failure seems to be a pretty steady amount, but mostly atherosclerotic disease, including stroke, peripheral vascular disease, arrhythmias, and arrest. So these are very, very common things. These are things you guys are all seeing on a normal day, but these patients are going to have a lot more um, burden. And these, these comorbidities can certainly affect outcomes. So if you were climbing Kilimanjaro, you're going to deal with hypoxia, darkness, exhaustion, glacial ice, pulmonary edema, cerebral edema before you even get to the top. So all these comorbidities add up to cardiac disease. They add up to malignancies. They increase your risk of infections. And our comorbidities that we're seeing more and more everywhere, including in transplant, is obesity and metabolic syndrome. So obesity, not uncommon after transplant. Again, this is Mayo data. It actually is published. I thought I updated that, but I guess not. So. After 30 days, this is kind of the lowest weight you're going to see a, a liver transplant recipient ever have. So take a picture. They will gain weight. Everyone gains weight. If you start off overweight, you're going to be obese. If you start off obese, you're not going to not be obese. So it happens to everyone. So the increase tends to peak at around three years. And it looked like in our data that it kind of flattened out after that. But there's other data out there that suggests it continues to increase. And this is actually a little bit even more interesting because they looked at where it's increasing. And it's really increasing in body fat percentage increased, lean body mass decreases over time. So this is from three years post-transplant to seven years post-transplant. So patients increase abdominal girth substantially, and they change from lean body weight to more fat-based adipose tissue weight. So why this happens, we don't quite know. And it's not simply that people feel good and they're eating more. That's certainly a factor. But there's got to be some kind of physiologic reason for that, and we really don't know. There's one study, although others have refuted it. This is a fairly old study that suggested their resting energy expenditure was decreased, at least in the short term post-liver transplant. They've looked at diet intake, and a lot of different studies have looked at diet intake in our liver transplant recipients. And in this particular study, they tended to eat the same amount of protein and carbs, but they craved and ate more whoops, fat. And why that would happen actually does make some, some physiologic sense. You've got a denervated liver. You know, you may be impacting some of the hormones and some of the, the transmission of noticing that there's fat in your small bowel. So cholecystokinin and all these other things aren't getting secreted so that they don't recognize that fat's there. They're still craving fat, et cetera. So there, there are reasons that could happen um, that, that contribute. Certainly eating more, eating badly, not exercising is a, is a part of it, but it's not the whole part of it. And 
everybody blames steroids and people are not on steroids long enough for it really to be a reason for them to be progressively increasing their weight for years. So please stop blaming steroids. So the other comorbidities are very, very, very common and they're more common, diabetes, high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, much more common in the transplant recipient, whether it's a kidney, heart, liver, than the general population, which as you all know is certainly not uncommon. But 50% of our, our transplant patients will have diabetes and about 30% of those will be long-term diabetes. And everyone seems to have this fascination with new onset diabetes. Whether it's new or whether it's old, actually old onset diabetes, you know, transplant is generally not gonna cure diabetes. So it's gonna have a lot longer time to have caused problems, and those patients are actually at worse risk than the new onset diabetes. So why everyone is so focused on new onset is beyond me, but diabetes is bad. I don't think I need to tell you that. Hyperlipidemia, hypertension, very, very, very common in our transplant patients. It's almost rare to see people that don't have those. So everyone here probably knows way more about this than I do, and, and diabetes care is the same in a transplant recipient as it is in a non-transplant recipient. All of the drugs are the same, all of the recommendations really are the same, and this is the, the recommendation in 2012 by the, the American Diabetes Association, which really just focuses on metformin. And metformin has a lot of good advantages, it's well tolerated in transplant patients, you don't really have to get too worried until the kidneys and the liver really aren't working at all before you have to worry about the metformin. So their recommendations are metformin, and when that doesn't work, metformin again and add something else, whatever that something else you want. All of the, there's actually a really good review paper out there looking at all of the diabetic medications, and there really aren't a lot of worrisome interactions as far as using the, the most of the ones that we're aware of right now, so as far as looking at them with our calcineurin inhibitors or our immunosuppression. So Treat diabetes as you normally would. People will come out from a transplant on insulin, and the best thing that we can do is try and convert them to an oral hypoglycemic. So trying not to continue the insulin indefinitely. If they can get by with an oral hypoglycemic, please do that. So goals are the same as in the non-transplant population, and everyone's well aware of these goals. A1C is less than 7%. And basically, in the very, very short term after transplant, having a higher blood sugar is not a bad thing to do. We're talking more about long-term goals, so keeping that A1C below 7. So hypertension management, slight nuances as far as the liver transplant patient goes. We always tend to forget to focus on the lifestyle modifications that we're supposed to be reminding people of, so let's not forget low-sodium diet, exercise, stop smoking. But there's a lot of... Strangely enough, a lot when you have obese population, a lot of obstructive sleep apnea. So we have to look for that. And there's a surprising number of sleep apnea patients pre-transplant. It's a growing problem. So we have to look for obstructive sleep apnea and treat it. Um, you know it's association with hypertension. We tend to use a lot of calcium channel blockers, which can you know, affect the renal vasoconstriction that are calcineurin inhibitors cause, so we use a lot of the, the dihydropyridine type calcium channel blockers. Don't be afraid of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. In the first period post-transplant, there's a lot of hyperkalemia and renal dysfunction, but once you get beyond that, they're actually quite well tolerated by the transplant patient. You will need to check the potassium, of course. 
Um, diuretics, if you have renal dysfunction, those thiazides tend not to work quite as well, and we have a lot of renal dysfunction in transplant patients. So you may or may not get the usual effect that you see with diuretics in a transplant patient. Obviously, diabetes is very common, so ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers are, are a good choice, especially for the proteinuria. But if you have someone with recurrent hep C or fibrosing disease of any form, there may be some benefit to fibrosis reduction with the ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. It's not completely well elucidated in the literature yet, but why not? So obviously, um, beta blockers are, are a question after transplant. We, we use them as second-line agents for the most part, so um, they're generally reasonably well-tolerated. You want to not use the non-selective beta blockers. We use them a lot pre-transplant to help with portal hypertension. But if you think about why we're doing that, it's you're, if you're using them post-transplant, you can actually reduce the inflow to the liver. So using the selective beta blockers are okay, but try to forget about the natalol and propranolol unless they're pre-transplant. So which antihypertensives to choose? Well, we went through a bunch of that, but there's a kidney, there's a fair bit of kidney literature around the ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. It's probably 50-50 whether they're better or, or, or not, but there's at least two reasonably decent studies that have shown that there's actually long-term survival benefit to having an ACE inhibitor in your concoction. So keeping the ACE inhibitors in mind. Cholesterol, again, this, the, the management overall is about the same, but the thing you need to know is a liver transplant recipient has a 10-year cardiac risk of nearly 14% on average. So there's going to be a bunch of people that are even higher than 14%, but at least 14%. So that tells us that we can skip that first line in the, in the cholesterol guidance. So pretty much every transplant recipient should have an LDL below 130. So maybe not the 30-year-old PSC patient, but the majority of our patients probably should benefit from an LDL below 130. <clears throat> Certainly if they have the usual other risk factors, and this is all just cut and paste from the cardiac and the, the endocrine literature. So if they have the usual risk factors, diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, et cetera, keeping their LDL below 100, and if they've had recent events or recent problems, LDL below 70. So the same guidelines as in the cardiac, and well, it's actually not the cardiac guidelines anymore. They're almost unreadable, but the cholesterol guidelines are the same. Just remembering that really every patient, almost every patient is going to have a risk of about 14%. The one thing to take home on treatment of cholesterol management is don't fear the statin. Even in a pre-transplant patient, don't fear the statin. Don't worry, don't worry about it in a post-transplant patient. They're well tolerated. They're safe. Even if they have underlying recurrent chronic liver disease in their allograft, they're safe. You just need to follow the liver enzymes. This is your new baseline. If they have NASH, you'll actually improve their liver function by giving a statin, potentially. And it's, it's been shown in at least three or four different studies now that if they have underlying liver disease, statins are fine. Just note that ALT of what it is, and if it's going up beyond that substantially, then you can um, worry about it. But it's pretty uncommon. So there is some mild immunosuppression interaction with almost all of the statins. The least interaction is with Pravacol, which happens to probably be the least effective, but um, the least interaction with Pravacol just following the immunosuppression levels when you start a statin is really all that we need to do. If they're on cyclosporin, there's a little bit more rhabdomyolysis, so keeping an eye on the CK. 
Ezetimide is safe, less effective, but safe in one study in transplant patients. So, so far it seems to be fine. It doesn't tend to get used a whole lot in our, in our population. Fish oil and fibrates are also um, fine, and you can use these and just follow, if they're on a fibrate again, just following the liver enzymes again. So when we look at the probability of death after transplant, you just follow them over long term. These are the ones that we've talked about, the recurrent liver disease, malignancy, infection, CMV. What's the surprising one here is beyond eight years, renal disease is the actual reason someone listed for a cause of death in liver transplant recipients. And there's a fairly steep rise when you get beyond that eight, nine, ten years um, with renal disease being the actual cause of death. And that's a little bit of a surprise. We see a lot of renal impairment in our liver transplant population. It's unusual to see normal creatinines, quite honestly. So when you look beyond a year, over half of the patients have renal impairment with a creatinine above 1.5. This is creatinine, this isn't GFR. So 75% of those are fairly mild renal dysfunction, but a quarter of them have pretty high creatinines. And 2 to 5% of the liver transplant recipients per year are on dialysis. So it's not uncommon for us. So this is just a graph um, Alina Allen just published a year and a half ago following long-term over 25 years. The majority of patients start off with, you know, reasonable GFRs, but you can see that the, the pie with the abnormal and, and poor GFR just continues to grow. And again, that influx time seems to be around nine, nine years or so. So renal dysfunction is not uncommon. If you have a patient with a low GFR, as your GFR gets lower, your actual risk of death does increase. And this is the same paper that just basically shows your increased mortality with the lower GFR um, over time as you follow. So a hazard ratio of about 2.7 if your creatinine is below 30, 30 to 15, and 5.5 nearly for anyone with a GFR below 15. So it is a very substantial cause and, and underlying reason for mortality in our liver transplant patient. Reasons for that or risk factors for getting uh, renal impairment after transplant early, these are things that you can't really fix after, but if they've gone into transplant obviously on dialysis or have renal failure, that's no surprise they're gonna have problems after. But if you go in just super sick, have a high MELD score or high bilirubin, um, you're more likely to have uh, renal dysfunction after. Everyone blames the calcineurin inhibitor for renal dysfunction. And there's no question that there's definite impact of the calcineurin inhibitor on people's renal function. But we have to remember that every other patient that's walking around that isn't a liver transplant patient has renal dysfunction from diabetes, hypertension, obesity, which is very, very common in our transplant patients. So... We always forget that. Not to mention all the other drugs that patients are on, so you do need to do a good drug review when you see the creatinine going up. And then there's these viruses that can cause some elements of, of renal dysfunction. Hep B tends not to be one now because it's really well controlled after transplant. And now, quite honestly, so will Hep C, but at least historically, Hep C could have been a, a reason. And then don't forget about contrast and other toxins as well. So, Try to keep in mind all the other causes of renal dysfunction and not just focus like we have over the years on the calcineurin inhibitor. No question it's an impact, but it's not the only player. Bone disease, also very, very common after transplant, actually more common before transplant too. Um, about 12 to 55% of osteo uh, prevalence of osteoporosis 
pre-transplants. So that's a pretty wide range and it depends on what studies you're reading, but it's certainly not uncommon. Patients will all lose bone mass in that first six months post-transplant. So it will slowly increase over the coming next two to three years and it'll, it should get closer to where it was beforehand around two years post-transplant. Fractures, though, are not uncommon. So in the literature, they actually range 24 to 65%. So that's actually a pretty huge number of patients having fractures. Most of them are ribs and, and vertebrae, but still very, very common. Most of them have occurred within that first year when things seem to be at their nadir. Reasons for this in that immediate post-transplant period, this one you can blame the steroids. So. Historically, people were on steroids a lot longer though, and now they're on steroids for a lot shorter period of time. And certainly steroids affect bone um, formation and bone resorption. Calcium urine inhibitors also increase bone resorption too though, so they can also be blamed. Um, and serolimus though is a new, one. Well, it's not all that new, actually it's an mTOR inhibitor. So all the mTOR inhibitors may actually improve uh, the bone resorption that's occurring. So this may be something that we don't tend to use as much in the, liver trans in the liver transplant population, but there's certainly a lot of good reasons for people to lose their bone mass. There's actually been a couple of studies looking at trying to prevent that bone loss in the immediate post-transplant period, and what they actually did was infuse bisphosphonate or give bisphosphonate in, a, in 136 patients at the time of transplant and, and over the two years following transplant. And they actually managed to avoid the loss in bone mass that they had, and in fact, in some cases, improved their bone mass over time. So you could at least avoid the, the loss that patients have by treating with bisphosphonates during transplantation. Pregnancy, the, all patients that get pregnant, liver transplant, kidney, heart, whatever transplant they have, they would all be considered high-risk pregnancies because of their immunosuppression, because of their allograft. So they're all considered high-risk pregnancies. There's an increased incidence in the liver transplant recipient of hypertension, preeclampsia, anemia, preterm deliveries, and C-sections. There's a lot of literature nowadays on vitamin D pretty much causing almost everything, but it's certainly been also associated with preeclampsia in patients. And we see a lot of vitamin D deficiency in our pre-liver transplant population. Um, a little bit less of a problem post, but certainly worth checking in your pregnant liver transplant recipient. So there, there's a, uh, the incidence of structural malformations is the same as the general population. We've recommended to most women that conception should be delayed for at least that first year, and, and it's sort of a, a random choice one year, honestly, but that's generally when people's allograft is, you know, you know that they're stable, they're on the lowest possible immunosuppression that they can be on, um, and that seems to be a, a, at least a reasonably safe period of time. The breastfeeding question comes up all the time. It's still controversial, but the benefit in general, most people believe the benefit is uh, outweighs the risk. There is uh, some low-dose um, calcineurin inhibitor, uh, both drugs that can be found in, in the, the baby, but it hasn't had any major um, effect. So as far as immunosuppression goes in pregnancy, which is the big question for a liver transplant recipient, um, you should continue whichever calcineurin inhibitor they're on, so cyclosporin or Prograf or Tacrolimus, you keep them on those medications. They've been associated with lower birth weight. 
you, you might get a transient hyperkalemia or renal impairment, but it's very transient and hasn't been uh, any substantial uh, risk. Continue on steroids, these have always been considered class B. mTOR inhibitors are also considered class C, just like a, a calcineurin inhibitor, but they are an anti-proliferative agent. So I don't think anyone could recommend that you would have a, a pregnant patient stay on an mTOR inhibitor. So those are the sirolimus, everolimus medications. Um, those should be changed before someone's trying to get pregnant. Mycophenolate mofetil or salcept, that's a class D agent. Miscarriages, fetal malformations, absolutely have to stop the medication. There's actually a program now where women have to sign that they know that they can't get pregnant on this medication. So they have to sign, it's called a REMS program. So they all know about, or they should know about it and, and definitely have to stop the mycophenolate if they happen to get pregnant when they're on it. Azathioprine technically is considered class D. It's been used all the time in the rheumatologic, inflammatory bowel disease world, even in transplant patients. Um, generally speaking, all of its effects seem to be fairly transient. There are some problems with neonatal leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, thymic hypoplasia, a bunch of immunoglobulin problems, but these have all normalized and didn't seem to come into any real consequence to the, to the infant. Oral contraceptives, another question we seem to get a lot in liver transplantation. Um, certainly, if someone's allograft is working normally, there's really no reason they can't use any oral contraceptive, hormone or otherwise. So if things are working fine, they can use pretty much anything. There's actually a website, CDC government um, website, that, that outlines all the drugs that, or all the disease underlying disease patients can have and which oral contraceptives they actually recommend for those patients. That's so kind of interesting. So in solid organ transplant, so not specific to the liver, but solid organ transplant, if it's uncomplicated, pretty much all the green boxes are go ahead, use it. Pretty much any of the oral contraceptives or non-oral type contraceptives are, are fine. If there's liver failure or liver dysfunction, trying to stay away from the hormone-based ones as you would in any end-stage liver or liver failure patients, so stay away from the hormones. Um, copper IUD, only because of the, this is more for the kidney transplant population. For some reason, they didn't want IUDs in the kidney transplant population, and it must have something to do with proximity. I have no idea why. So um, for the most part, for liver transplant patients, unless they have liver failure, you can pretty much give them anything. Do note, while everyone knows estrogen-containing products, hypertension and clot risk. There are some P450 interactions, so you might just want to make sure you're checking your um, immunosuppression levels. And Depo-Provera actually makes um, osteoporosis a whole lot worse. So it's actually technically been contraindicated with active liver disease. The definition of that isn't totally well defined. But if you have liver failure or you bat, bad osteoporosis, you might want to choose something other than a Depo-Provera or, or um, progesterone. Getting towards the end here, vaccinations, very, very important for our liver transplant patients. Um, certainly, flu vaccines every year, all of the usual Tdap-type vaccines should be administered. And then there's this new world of the pneumococcal vaccines that's almost incomprehensible nowadays. But you have to have the PCV13 at least once and the PPSV23 um, revaccinate five years after your first one and once more over the age of 75. 
everyone should have the hepatitis A and B vaccine series. Once they're immunosuppressed, it's really hard to get somebody to actually mount a response and become immune. So best to do these things before transplant. Um, if they're negative after transplant, you can try once more. You're probably going to need the double dose hep B vaccine to even have a hope of getting them to respond. HPV vaccines, it's still technically only meant for the 11 to 26. I'm pretty sure they're giving it to people beyond that, but it would be up to you guys. The one thing to note about transplant patients, liver, kidney, heart, other, any other one, live attenuated vaccines don't give them to the immunosuppressed patient. So the zoster, the, the varicella vaccine, MMR, only give these pre-transplant, um, and you don't want to give them to the post-transplant patient. Other drugs to be aware of, there's a whole list of them. Um, things that'll inter interact and affect our calcium urine inhibitors. The short way to remember this is anything that's an azole or a mycin, because those are things that we prescribe all the time. It's going to affect our calcium urine inhibitors. The prograph level is going to go up, cyclosporin will go up. Most of these other ones are pretty rare. Um, Diltiazem, sometimes we use it to bring people's levels up, but for the most part, if you're prescribing antibiotics for three days, probably not a big deal. If you're going to go 10 to 14 days, it's going to have an effect, and we at least need to know about it to adjust immunosuppression levels. Not very many of the usual ones that will decrease the level. We don't use these a whole lot, but there are drugs that will lower your calcium urine in, uh, inhibitors and rifampin, which sometimes people use for itch or for whatever, that'll drop like a stone. So our, our prograph levels drop horribly low. So think about these things before prescribing the medication. And even patients taking St. John's wort can have a really big drop in their prograph levels. So keep an eye on those things. And this is one of my other soapboxes. So analgesic use in transplant patients is acetaminophen is safe. You can use that. And even in your chronic liver disease patient, if you're going to have to choose an analgesic, actually acetaminophen is the safest one to use in a patient with liver disease. So under four grams is safe in any person. Under two grams a day, general consensus is is safe even in chronic liver disease. Certainly in liver transplant, they have a normal allograph. They can have up to four grams a day. But don't eat the whole bottle is basically what I tell the patient. So if you have end-stage liver or even people that have a transplant and have liver disease in their transplant, two grams a day is fine. In cirrhotics, in cirrhotics, avoid the NSAIDs. Because when someone says they're not allowed to have acetaminophen, the first thing they do is grab Advil. And that's going to probably have way more effect than taking Tylenol. So in cirrhotic patients, this is kind of irrelevant to, to transplant, but in cirrhotic patients, please let them use a little bit of acetaminophen if they need it. Narcotics in our liver transplant world, not a real super big problem, but in a cirrhotic with end-stage liver disease, they're much more likely to have bad encephalopathy. So again, a small dose of acetaminophen is way better than having someone completely out of it because the only medication they're allowed to use is codeine or morphine or something. Gabapentin, Lyrica, not affected by the liver. So go ahead, use them. They're, they're generally safe in liver or, or, or kidney patients, so they're, they're not metabolized by either. Herbal products, another soapbox all of us transplant people have is um, herbal products are not regulated. There's any number of things in that pill that makes them be able to stay in a pill form. So the root or the extract or whatever it is might be fine. But all those stabilizers, all those preservatives, whatever it is, 
they can be toxic, and we transplant people for taking these naturopathic stuff. And there are things that are safe. There are things that are definitely not safe. So St. John's Ward is going to affect our calcineurin inhibitors and drug absorption. And then there's all sorts of different things that people use that can affect cyclosporin and prograph levels. Um, some people will just start immune stimulants because they are told it's the healthy thing to do, but we're trying to suppress their immune system. So don't let them do that, basically. So I'm not sure that alfalfa sprouts are a really big problem there, but it's on the list. So grapefruit juice, pomelo, pomegranate, these actually do affect calcineurin inhibitors. So we tell people to stay away from those types of juices just because short fluctuations. I mean, if they're going to drink it every single day for the rest of their lives, that's fine. But um, we do tell them to try to avoid those specific things. So in summary, up to 50% of our transplant recipients currently are surviving 20 years. This is going to get better, and it, there, it probably already is better because those are the patients transplanted from the 90s. Um, so more and more patients are surviving. And survival relies on minimizing the effects of all these things we've talked about today. So recurrent disease, definitely going to have an effect with the new antiviral therapy we have. Malignancy, we need to have really good, strict screening programs. Be aware that malignancies are much higher in a transplant patients, and try for immunosuppression minimization. Infection, again, immunosuppression minimization. Be aware of CMV. Be aware of fungal infections. Cardiovascular disease, we really need to be aggressive on the comorbidity management. And quite honestly, somebody who comes back once a year to the liver transplant area and we deal with their diabetes and hypertension is getting suboptimal management of diabetes and hypertension. They need regular follow-up with their local docs dealing with their diabetes and hypertension like they would any other patient that has those problems. Renal disease, again, manage the comorbidities and try to minimize immunosuppression. So just to give you guys a few moments to relax, there are top 10 worldwide lose with a view, and this is one of them at the McKinnon Pass in Milford uh, Trek in New Zealand. So you, this is what you can look at. And we're finished. So. That was, uh, that was a standing presentation. I think a lot of the issues with transplant patients are they, they have almost a mystique that makes them some, some fear in the taking care of. But I think you did a beautiful job of, of doing it all. Uh, are there any questions uh, for, for Dr. Watt? On the medication slide at the bottom, there's something about statins, but I couldn't read it. So just the statins, we sort of mentioned it um, in the, the cholesterol thing. Statins with cyclosporin will increase rhabdomyolysis, or, so you just need to monitor the CK a little bit more. So. Uh, you mentioned trying to get people off insulin if they have diabetes after transplant. Is that to minimize the risk of weight gain, or is there a pathophysiologic reason for that? Most of it's to minimize the risk of, of weight gain and... Yeah, most of it's for that, but to try and just have them on oral hypoglycemics, if at all possible. Because the weight gain does tend to compound on top of itself. You're more likely to keep being, you know, diabetic and requiring more and more insulin as you go. So it ends up being the cycle. Oh, um, 
Is the, well, how much of the weight gain is, re, is related to the calcineurin inhibitor? That's the first question. The second question is, with all the vascular disease that's associated with these patients, are you trying to do, use less calcineurin inhibitors in your immunosuppressive programs, like the renal transplant people are trying to do? So the weight gain, you know, there's not a lot of data out there on prograf and cyclosporin, and that what little data there is, there's actually very little effect. There's very little data, but there's really two studies that ever looked at any of the immunosuppressions. So the cyclosporin and prograf haven't had a major impact on weight gain. Actually, mTOR inhibitors may help with weight gain. Um, it's sort of just mentioned in a, a lot of the studies as kind of an aside, but there's actual mechanistic reason for an mTOR inhibitor to actually prevent adipose tissue proliferation and expansion. So it may be a choice for somebody to help avoid the weight gain, but it's really not been, you know, the, the literature around it hasn't been expanded enough to really be able to say that. But the calcineurins haven't had a big impact on weight gain per se. Prograph's a bit more associated with um, diabetes, cyclosporins more associated with, you know, the hyperlipidemia and hypertension and, and, and stuff. So the weight gain. So for the vascular stuff, you know, the, we, there's no real change we've made as far as immunosuppression to prevent vascular disease. Intuitively, you would think sirolimus will have less vascular, you know, problems with endothelial proliferation, et cetera. I mean, it's what we're putting in the covered stents when we're opening up arteries that are blocked. Um, and there are studies that do start to look, um, that do show that sirolimus may do that. Tacrolimus also has a little bit of that same effect. It's just not as much as the mTOR inhibitors. So intuitively, you might actually have some benefits to the vascular disease with tacrolimus or sirolimus, not so much with cyclosporin, but we really haven't adjusted calcineurin inhibitors just just for the vascular disease yet. Uh, it was a great talk. I think it's going to be on the field. A couple, one comment about the mTORs, um, you know, from a surgeon's standpoint, the long term. But I think, if, particularly if you're in the primary care and they're not healing their wounds, they don't, they have a, you know, a skin, a skin problem, and they, and people who think, and they're colonists will kind of burn off their wounds so they don't feel, you have to get them off their mTORs. I guess my more interesting question is particularly for things like U.S. the Mayo who are transplanting people all over the country and that sort of stuff. Can you sort of help the folks understand kind of how you want the primary care docs to relate to their transplant programs and their centers and that sort of stuff? What kind of instructions you give patients and sort of how are we going to deal with these patients that are farther and farther from their primary care yeah, that's a bit of a challenge. We we do, tr you know, we at Mayo see patients annually, no matter how far they could be, 25 years, 30 years out, 84-year-old people coming back, and, you know, they're doing great. We do see people annually, and we feel like that's part of why they're doing great, though, is because they're having all this micromanaging, but it, there's so many patients now that we really, we try to send a very detailed letter, problem list-based, to the primary care doc and try to outline, you know, diabetes management should follow up with primary care doc. But part of the problem is, is the patient thinks we're all doing everything so they don't actually go see their primary care. And we really want patients to start having their, I mean, it's suboptimal management once a year having your diabetes and hypertension monitored. So they primary care really need to 
be taking over the diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, bone disease. And those are all things that, you know, we hope everyone's comfortable with and that we're, our door is always open, our phones are always on to help, you know, we usually look after the calcineurin inhibitors and the immunosuppression adjustments and watching liver enzymes. We'll bring them back if they need biopsies, et cetera. But we do need the help of the primary care docs to look after some of the other comorbidities for sure. Just going back to the Lavadian pattern there, did you foresee um, bariatric interventions, the whole panoply? um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Um, you know, we, we've actually done quite a bit of, or starting to do quite a bit in that. So in the pre-transplant, you know, there's more and more obese patients coming, and a lot of centers won't transplant super obese. So a lot have a cutoff of a BMI of 40 or, or somewhere around there. We don't have a specific cutoff. You know, we've looked at doing bariatric surgery in people with cirrhosis and at least some element of mild portal hypertension. And small numbers of patients, but they've done okay, caveat being small amount of portal hypertension. If you have big varices, it's really hard to go in and do a sleeve gastrectomy and stuff like that. Perioperatively, we've actually done bariatric sleeves at the time of transplant in probably about 18 patients now. And those patients, I could have shown some data, but those patients have done really well. Most of them have BMIs in the mid mid to late 20s now. Um, they don't have diabetes, they don't have all of those incumbent problems. Patients after transplant can get bariatric procedures. Um, the data out there are all case series for post-transplant patients, and you know the bariatric literature calls them really challenging cases, but transplant surgeons kind of giggle when we say that. Um, so they can, get, they can get bariatric procedures. It's probably best to go with the restrictive procedures as opposed to the malabsorptives because we want biliary tree access, you know, and if you, you, you take that away for the most part when you do the malabsorptive procedures, but that's becoming more and more of an interest in the transplant, whether it's liver, kidney, whatever transplant population because of the obesity that we see. And just a plug for the course, actually, as we go upstairs to finish the course, uh, Kim has a talk on bariatric surgery and I think we have time for one more question. I think we can hope. Yeah, um, I was just wondering if there are studies at all that show um, a benefit in use of statins for people with MASH? So, benefit is... <laughs> No, but they've, they've looked at statins. The, the benefit to the statins are the studies where we've looked at, you, you know, are statins safe in liver disease? And you can actually look at the graphs and see that people's liver enzymes actually improved on the statin as opposed to worse. Um, the group that didn't have statins had higher enzymes than the group that had statins. The actual formal NASH studies, all of which are plagued with badness uh, in the, the statin studies um, haven't shown a definite histologic benefit, but they're very short, and oh, that's the problem with most NASH studies is they're very short, and the histologic benefit isn't really going to be seen. So there's no reason not to use the statin. The statin will not necessarily fix their NASH. Okay. Well, thank you all. Thank you all for coming. I want to...